It is such a comfort. Again, to know that You are shepherding us, Lord. That there is nothing that befalls us that is accidental. Lord, Your sovereignty is hard at times. And it's also a great comfort because we know that You are good. Lord, we need to hear from Your Word. In particular, because it's Your Word that we trust more than anything else. To give us guidance, to give us hope and peace. We don't put our trust in the things of this life, but we put our trust in You. And I pray that You would give us special assistance this afternoon to understand and to cling to Paul's words to Timothy that we might learn from them, be guided by them, and Lord, really, that we would follow after them. That we would be able to say with Paul that we have fought the fight, that we have finished the course, and we've kept the faith. We ask these things in Your name. Amen. Years ago when reading Ecclesiastes, I was struck by Solomon's statement in chapter 7-2 where he says, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will take it to heart. Now, our culture gives little attention to suffering and grief. It's something we seek to avoid. We try to guard ourselves from such emotions because they hurt. They make us feel weak. They remind us that everything in life eventually passes away. But it's for this very reason that Solomon says it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. Because we need to take our end to heart. And that's not something we're prone to do. We're prone to think maybe about the next day or what we want to accomplish. But rarely do we think about what are our last moments on earth going to be like. And this parallels what Moses says in Psalm 90. The years of our life are 70, or if by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and the wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And today, providentially, marks the beginning of a new year. It's a great time for us to evaluate both on what the Lord has done for us over the past year, but also what is it that we desire to accomplish in the year ahead. On top of this, three deaths have affected members of our body within the last few weeks. 
Dan Wilcox lost his father a few weeks ago. Mark Bowman lost his uncle a few days ago. And we lost Daniel Lozano on Wednesday. In each of these deaths, they came far more suddenly than anyone expected. And one of the last times I met with Daniel Lozano, we discussed in particular the text before us today in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. And so if you will turn in your Bibles to that text, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, I'll read it for us. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. In the first, a few weeks ago, we saw in 1 Corinthians that Paul called the Corinthians to imitate him, to follow after his example as he sought to follow Christ. And then in these last words that we have from Paul, the very last words he penned before his death, he gives us an example of how we can follow him even in his death. How a Christian faces death. And he does this by showing how he himself considers his present circumstances, his past life, and the future that is immediately before him. And that is our outline. Paul's present. In verse 6, he gives a perspective of his life. In verse 7, as he looks back on his life, he He declares that he has fought the good fight, that he has been faithful up to the end. And then he shares what he anticipates in the future, receiving a crown of righteousness at the Lord's coming in verse 8. Now, for whatever reason, Paul knows that he's coming to the end. This was not because he was terminally ill. Because we know that Paul didn't die by disease. He died by uh, being beheaded by the request of Emperor Nero. And what's interesting is in other letters that Paul wrote, he expressed great optimism that he was going to be freed. But we see none of that optimism here. He knows his time is short. And which is partly why he writes this last letter to his son in the faith, Timothy. He wants to give Timothy guidance. He wants to let Timothy know how a Christian faces death. What is it that we should all say? What is it that we should hope to be like when our time to depart this earth comes? How can we finish well? And he begins by sharing his present perspective on his life. In verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. 
And what he shares here is he considers his present circumstances, his perspective on life, is that he views his life as an act of worship. That's what he means when he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The drink offering was the last part of a sacrifice that was offered up in the Jewish sacrificial system. It's described in Numbers 15, verses 1 through 10. And it was usually about a gallon of wine that was poured out, last of all, next to the main sacrifice, as a complement to that greater sacrifice. And so what Paul is saying here is that he views his life as being poured out for the sake of that greater sacrifice, as a, as a mere complement to the main sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's a mere complement to Christ, a mere servant. And death was just one more opportunity for him to show to a world that is full of hopelessness how precious his Savior was to him. The same longing is concisely captured by Steve Green in his song, I Will Offer Up My Life. Steve Green writes, I will offer up my life in spirit and truth, pouring out the oil of love as my worship to you. In surrender, I must give my every part. Lord, receive the sacrifice of a broken heart. Jesus, what can I give? What can I bring to so faithful a friend? And to so loving a king. Savior, what can be said? What can be sung as a praise of your name for the things you've done? Oh, my words could not tell. Not even in part. Of the debt of love that is owed by this thankful heart. The other thing that we notice in this text. Is that. Paul knows and understands that each of us has an appointed period of time on this earth. And he demonstrates that by particularly his word departure. He says, the time of my departure has come. And it's an interesting word. It's the word, Greek word analuo, which is the same word we get our word analysis from. And it means to loosen, to unbind and it was a common expression for death. In particular, it was used in military circles for the uh, loosening of tent stakes. When you would take down your tent, you would loosen your tent when you were ready to depart with the army. Or when a ship was ready to set sail or hoist its anchor, they would loose it and it would depart. It's the same word Paul uses here. And this is what J.R.R. Tolkien seeks to depict in his final pages to his great masterpiece, The Lord of the Rings, that depicts both Frodo departing from his friends on a ship bound for the Grey Havens. And here, Tolkien's really striving to give the perspective of one who departs and those left behind. And it's, it's really a figure of death. This is what he writes. 
Then Frodo kissed Mary and Pippin, and last of all Sam, and went aboard. And the sails were drawn up, and the wind blew, and slowly the ship slipped away down the long gray firth. And the light of the glass of Galadriel that Frodo bore glimmered and was lost. And the ship went out into the high sea and passed on into the west until at last on a night of rain Frodo smelled a sweet fragrance on the air and heard the sound of singing that came over the water. And then it seemed to him that as in his dream in the house of Bombadil the great rain curtain turned all to silver glass and was rolled back and he beheld white shores and beyond them a far green country under a swift sunrise. But to Sam, the evening deepened to darkness as he stood at the haven. And as he looked at the gray sea, he saw only a shadow on the waters that was soon lost in the west. There he stood far into the night, hearing only the sigh and murmur of the waves on the shores of Middle Earth, and the sound of them sank deep into his heart. Beside him stood Mary and Pippin, and they were silent. At last the three companions turned away, and never again looking back, they rode slowly homewards, and they spoke no word to one another until they came back to the Shire. But each had great comfort in his friends on the long gray road. So we have both Frodo's experience and then also the contrast of those he left behind. And Paul's point here is that he knew that the time of his departure had come, that God was calling him home. His death was not accidental. And likewise, our deaths are planned, they're purposed, they're designed. God knows the time when he will call each of us home. And in fact, the reality is, in that sense, each of us is immortal until our work is done. Until that day, until that hour that God is appointed to call us home, we're immortal. And it's because of this truth we can face death with confidence. Death is not an accident, we are not being punished either those who depart or those who are left behind. We are being called home. Our deployment is over. Our time is done. Paul also considers his past. As he looks back on his life, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So as Paul looked back on his life, he was able to say that he fought the good fight, that he finished the race. And this is, of course, one of his favorite metaphors that he uses throughout his letters, that this metaphor of a race that he is running, a hard fought race. The word fought is the word agonizomai, where we get the word to agonize. He runs his race with agony. It depicts one striving with intense effort. 
The point is, the Christian life is not a life of coasting. It is a hard-fought effort, one of great pain, one of great exhaustion. And this term is actually an athletic term. As one exhausts themselves as they run this race. And it's worth looking at some of the other times. He uses this metaphor to broaden our perspective on what Paul thought a faithful life looked like. Early in Second uh, Timothy, in chapter, um, chapter, sorry, First Timothy, chapter six, he says, "But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness." And then he says, "Fight the good fight of the faith." That's what fighting the good fight looks like. Pursuing these things. He uses the same metaphor in 1 Corinthians. We'll come to later. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, but they do it to obtain a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable run. So he says, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself, I myself should be disqualified. In Philippians 3, he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that is, the people that have gone before us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. My favorite verse Acts chapter 20, verse 24, Paul writes, I do not account my life of any value as precious to myself. If only, this is the one thing he wants, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So you, you see everything, and Paul was constantly thinking about that day. He just wanted to be faithful. And that's really what is meant by this last phrase, I have kept the faith. It's the phrase, tain piston to tekna. The word kept doesn't mean to guard or to protect as it often is translated, but it means to continue in, to keep something going. So Paul's point isn't that he guarded his faith, but he kept going. He kept seeking to be faithful all the way to the end. He never gave up trying to be faithful to what God had called him to do, as he longed for, as he said in those previous illustrations of the race. He remained faithful to the end. And notice the definite article. The faith. 
He kept the faith. It's referring to God's word, that which we place our faith in. So Paul's point again is that he did all that God had called him to do. All that God had called him to do in his word. He, he, he was faithful to it. He didn't give up obeying God's word, either to him as an individual or just what had been revealed to him to the church in general. And likewise, we fight the good fight. We seek to finish the race. When we are faithful to do what God has called us to do. When we remain faithful to the end. And that is, we don't get caught up in pursuing trivialities in life. We don't get distracted and pour out our time and energy and our efforts on things that are meaningless. Because when we look back on our lives, and we're at the place where Paul is, we're not going to be asking our, ourselves, we're not going to be hoping in our own heart, I wish I could have just gotten one more promotion. I wish I would have just earned another thousand dollars. I wish I would have won one more trophy or had one more room of my house remodeled. That's not what we're going to want to do. All those things that the world says, this is what makes you great. You are not going to care at all about those things. When your time comes, you're going to want to know that you had been faithful to God. And death is simply not something we think much about until we're forced to. But we all know that death is coming to each of us. To our spouses, to our friends, to our children. It's coming to us all. But how few of us live in anticipation of our departure. Instead, we just focus upon making a name for ourselves or just having fun. Or just entertaining ourselves. But as Solomon learned, all that stuff is vanity. Because even our greatest feats, even the greatest things that we accomplish are just going to be forgotten. One day, you will be forgotten. Your name will not be remembered by anyone or what you did. As Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 12, he says, For who knows what is good for a man while he lives, the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? We want to spend our lives fighting for the only things that will matter on that day. The truth is, if something is not worth Dying for. It's not worth living for. If something in your life you're pursuing is not worth you dying for it. It's not worth you pursuing it. It's not worth living for it. Paul's confidence in his past faithfulness is what gives him such confidence in his future reward. 
And that's what he describes in verse 8. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So as Paul considers what lies before him, his mind is focused upon one particular thing. And notice what it is. It's receiving a crown of righteousness. And it's interesting, he doesn't mention here receiving his resurrection body. He doesn't mention hoping to see old friends who have already passed in heaven. He mentions a crown of righteousness. And he looks forward to it because of what that crown represents. The greatest longing in his life to be declared and found righteous. He looks forward to the point when he will finally be righteous. When his sinful deeds are done. When he stops sinning. When his body is no longer corrupted by his fleshly desires. When he will no longer have to come to God again and plead for mercy. Again, ask for forgiveness. Again, confessing that he has done the things which he no longer wants to do. And yet he does it. The day when he will be finally done having to ask for forgiveness. Paul's greatest joy in this life. We see in the book of Roman, Romans was that promise that he was counted righteous. He knew right now, he knew as he wrote this letter to Timothy that God counted him as righteous. He was declared righteous. God no longer was counting his sins against him. He knew that. But that is not enough for Paul. What Paul really wanted was not just to be counted righteous, but to truly be righteous. To truly be done with sin. Completely forgiven fully realizing that righteousness in being given a resurrected body. And one of the things that stood out to me as I have read the accounts of martyrs of the English Reformation was how many of them, as they were approaching their execution, the text that they recited was Psalm 51. Most notably, William Hunter, Roland Taylor, Lady Jane Grey, and John Rogers. Those are just the ones that I remembered off the top of my head. Why not the 23rd Psalm? The 51st. The psalm where David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's, this, it's the psalm that David wrote after he'd been confronted by Nathan for what he had done with Bathsheba. They're approaching their death asking God for mercy. Why? 
Well, I think it's because when that day comes for each of us, when death becomes a reality and not just some vague idea, the one thing that we're going to care about, the greatest longing, the greatest hope in our heart is, God, be merciful to me. Because judgment is the next thing we will face. The righteous judge who has seen all the evil that we have done in our youth. The judge with whom we will have to give an account for every careless word. The greatest longing we're going to have on that day will be for the mercy of God. And nothing will be more precious to us than when we stand before that judge and instead of hearing, depart from me, you wicked one, he will extend before us a crown of righteousness and declare us righteous. We will be declared righteous as those who had never committed a single sin in their life. We will be treated as those who have walked in perfect perfection, not because of what we have done, but because Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed on our behalf and we placed our trust in Him. Our righteousness was purchased by another. And Paul says all believers will receive such a crown. And notice that this crown is going to be given to all who have loved His appearing. So it's not just for the super spiritual Christians, those who have lived lives like Paul, but to all who have loved Christ. And Paul says that specifically for our encouragement. I mean, why else would he say that to Timothy? To everyone who longs for the return of Christ, they will receive this crown of righteousness because they've put their faith in Christ. They long for him and his justice. And they're confident in His death on their behalf. But also, these believers look forward to Christ's return. Notice what Paul says. What Paul's looking forward to is not so much heaven, but the event that will happen after we depart to be with Christ. When Christ Himself appears... Paul's great longing is for the appearance of Christ. The receiving of the crown happens after Christ's second coming. When the dead are raised, all the dead receive their resurrected body, and Christ descends upon the earth. All those scriptures that were prophesied about that we read during Christmas time of Christ reigning upon the earth, this is the time that Paul is really looking forward to. This is his great hope. Now, Paul does say in Philippians 1.23 that his desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better, he says. And that's true. He does want to be with his Savior. But what he really longed for, as we read even earlier in 2 Corinthians 5, was not just that he would, his spirit would depart to be in Christ, but that he would not be unclothed, but further clothed, that he would receive his resurrected body. 
Because he says, while in we're still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we'd be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So his desire is not just that he, that he would end his race, which he's about to do. His great longing is that all believers would end their race. He, he waits with anticipation. What he hopes for is when all that he has invested his life in will be done. When Christ is returned and all of ministry is accomplished. And so we should keep in mind that Paul is writing these final words to Timothy, encouraging him to finish his race well. And let us, let's also remember that these are not just the last musings of an old dying man, but the inspired words that are a gift to us from our Creator. This is what God wants us to know as we come to death. In summary, what we see here is an injunction that Paul repeated throughout his life in ministry. Run hard. Fight the good fight. Fulfill your ministry. Finish well. At 7 p.m. on October 20th, 1968, a few thousand spectators remained in Mexico City Olympic Stadium. It was cool and dark. The last of the marathon runners, each exhausted, were being carried off to first aid stations. In fact, more than an hour earlier, Mamomo Wulda of Ethiopia looking as fresh as when he started the race, crossed the finish line, the winner of the 26-mile, 385-yard event. And as the remaining spectators prepared to leave, those sitting near the marathon gate suddenly heard the sound of sirens and police whistles, and all eyes turned toward the gate. A lone figure wearing number 36 in the colors of Tanzania entered the stadium. His name was John Stephen Akwahari. He was the last man to finish the marathon. He had fallen during the race. He had injured his leg, his knee and his ankle in particular. And now with his leg bloody and bandaged, he grimaced with each hobbling step around the 400 meter track. And the spectators rose to applaud him. And after crossing the finish line, Akwahari slowly walked off the field. And later, a reporter asked Akwahari the question on everyone's mind. Why did you continue to run the race after you were so badly injured? And he replied, My country did not send me 7,000 miles to run a race but 7,000 miles to finish it. Pray. Heavenly Father, You did not save us so that we might just start a race, but so that we might finish it. Lord, help each of us to know what we need to do what hindrances we need to cut out
what ambitions we need to pursue. What changes we need to make in our life that we might not come to that final day and say that we've wasted it. Heavenly Father, I thank You in particular for the examples of men like the Apostle Paul, but most especially my dear brother Daniel Lozano, who finished well. Lord, I pray that You be gracious to each of us to follow their example. that we might run the race before us, fighting the fight and finishing well. We ask these things in Christ's name.